Well, I would invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians this morning, uh, the same passage that Roger read from, Philippians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be in towards the back of your Bible, page 981, if you're using um, one of the Bibles in the rack um, in front of your chair. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. As a basketball fan, I remember vividly, and maybe a lot of you will as well, I remember vividly the jingle of the 90s for Gatorade. Anybody know what I'm about to say? I'll, I'll read the words of the first verse to you, and you guys can hum along. Sometimes I dream, is it coming back? That he is me. You've got to see, that's how I dream to be. The way, uh, how I, I, I dream I move, I dream I groove like Mike. If I could be like Mike, like Mike, Oh, if I could be like Mike. How many of you remember that jingle? Oh my goodness, this is, this is a shame. Do you even know who Mike is? Who's Mike? Michael Jordan. That was the song that echoed uh, in, our, in, in, in the basketball courts growing up, that echoed in our minds, in our classroom, growing up, watching Michael Jordan play. Man, teenagers and, and, and younger people, young adults that watch basketball now, I feel sorry for them. I mean, the, I, didn't, I, mean I, I was kind of on the tail end of, of remembering anything from the 80s, but man, the 90s was awesome basketball. And kids are, what's that? Oh, amen, all right. Kids around the world would sing, literally around the world would sing that song and try to copy the moves of Michael Jordan on the basketball court. Everyone, every child dreamed that they were number 23. They all had one thing in common, all of us growing up who liked basketball, we wanted to be an imitator of Michael Jordan. And then I think, if, and again, if you were a, bas- are a basketball fan and, and you recall the, specifically the early 90s, Michael Jordan was the, 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 the typical uh, role model and he kind of relished that role as was indicated in that song. But then you t- take the flip end of that and I also remember, and maybe you remember, a fellow by the name of Charles Barkley. You remember him? He's a commentator today for basketball. Well, Charles Barkley was a total different story. He was disgruntled about people looking up to him as a role model. In fact, does anybody remember what his famous line was in the early 90s? His famous line was, I am not a role model. He said, I'm a basketball player. I'm not a role model. That's probably why in the 92 Olympics when he elbowed that one guy from, I forget what country it was, everybody gave him a lot of hard times. And he said, hey, I'm just a basketball player. He, whether he liked it or not, because 
of who he was in the public limelight, he was a role model. And it's easy for us to think of famous people or famous athletes or actors or, or uh, whoever it is, uh, to think of them as role models, as, as in the eye of other people. Because they're talented, because they're, they're actors, whatever it is, because they have a lot of money. But really, when you come to think of it, all of us are public examples in one way or another. Because we are living our lives before people. So this morning, you could be a parent. And whether you realize it or not, your children are watching you. They're watching your actions. They're watching your attitudes. They're watching your words. They're watching the things you do. They're noticing the things you don't do. You are a role model for the positive or negative to your children. Grandparents are role models. Siblings are role models. Teenagers are role models or examples to their fellow teens and to those who are younger that are looking at them. You are an example to your co-workers. You are an example to your fellow church member. The list could go on and on. We are living our lives before people and before God. So the question we need to ask ourselves is who or what are we representing in our lives and how well are we doing it? Some of us may be surprised, in fact, when when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. We could think, wow, that's kind of conceited of Paul to say, be an imitator of me. But then we get a fuller description of what he is talking about because later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So he was hoping that people saw not himself, but Christ through the testimony of his life. You see, as Christians, we represent none other than Jesus himself. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, it says that we are Christ's ambassadors. We are his representatives. So basically, we are, to this world and and to our fellow church body, we are walking pictures of, of the gospel and of the work of the gospel in our lives. And we have to aim to represent Christ well. And that's why the fifth commitment in our church membership covenant says, as, as we, uh, Roger alluded to when he read the scripture, and it'll be on the overhead, we will seek to live lives above reproach as a testimony to God's redeeming work in our lives. Now note that this statement, it doesn't say that we are to live, testimony, uh, live our lives as a testimony for the sake of us or so that people can look at us. 
It is to live a life of testimony that God is doing a redeeming work in your life, in my life. Not that, as we're going to see from, uh, from our text today, not that we're perfect. In fact, God's redeeming work in our life is actually going to free us to admit our sins and failures and shortcomings. But our testimony is to God's redeeming work in our lives. So I want to ask you today, is your testimony, whether you are a child here or whether you are a teenager or a college student or um, a, 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 a young adult who's married or you are, are 90 years old today, I want to ask you, is your testimony one that others know that you are a follower of Jesus and that you reflect his heart that he has for others. Today, as we look at what being an imitator looks like when Paul says, be imitators of me, as we look at what it means uh, uh, about living our life as a testimony before others, what I want to do is I want to unpack three key elements to understanding what it means to live a t life of testimony. I want us to look at our standard that we hold before us as we live a life of testimony. I want us to, to, to look at some common misconceptions we have when we think about being an example to others. And then I want us in Philippians 3 to look at a real life example of what it means to be someone that is living for Christ, that is an example for other people to follow. So let's, let's open with a word of prayer, and we are going to again reiterate this key theme of our series, we are called to be what? The church. You and I are called to be the church. And as the church, we are called to represent Christ to each other in this room, and to those in this world, we are called to represent Christ well. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that you would, first of all, remind us of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is our salvation, that he died, he was buried, he rose again for the sins of his people. Lord, if there's one today, yes, they may know the right facts. They may know that, okay, Jesus, he died on the cross, he, he, he was buried, he rose again, but Lord, they have never embraced that reality. They have never thrown themselves upon your mercy, given their lives to you and said, Lord... I want that salvation that you offer. I want to live according to a different master. Lord, I pray today would be the day they do that. Lord, for those of us that are Christians, it's so easy, so easy in my life and in the life of everyone in this room to be intimidated and to think that we, we're not really an example 
or we could never be an example for Christ to others. But Lord, would you encourage us with the truth of your word this morning? Lord, would you apply the gospel, not only help us to remember the gospel, but apply the gospel to our hearts, to our life situations, to our struggles, to our fears this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, we want to look, when it comes to this idea of being an imitator for others to follow or being an example or a testimony, what is the standard that we are called to uphold as we know that others are watching us? 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, I, I already mentioned this verse to you, but before we even get to Philippians, we have to, to, to unpack some things. And 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, Be imitators of me. And what's the last phrase say? Let's say it out loud. As I am of Christ. So the standard for being an example or a testimony to others is first of all that we point others to Christ. It is not pointing others to yourself, to the way you do it, to the interests, to the likes, even to the weaknesses you have in your life. Being an imitator for others to follow in their Christian life means that your life is one that reflects Jesus. Not simply in word, but in lifestyle, in priority. In fact, others are to follow our, our example only as we follow Christ. You see, other people should not follow our example if we ourselves are not seeking Christ. How easy that is, mom, dad, to be teaching your children life lessons and expecting them to follow you when all of it is is an empty shell of morality. And man, they can see right through that how different it is when you are seeking to follow Christ from the heart. And out of that heart desire comes those life lessons. You see, as we follow Christ, then others are to follow our example. Paul does not say, simply follow me. It is in the context that I am following Christ and I'm giving you a visual picture of what that looks like. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says that we are to be looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Now Hebrews 12 and verse 1 starts out by saying, seeing we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And the great cloud of witnesses that's being talked about there is chapter 11, all of the characters of the Bible that at one point or another exercise great faith. But then when we get to chapter 12, it says, yes, we have others 
as an encouragement that they too have followed God by faith, but we are not to be looking to them ultimately as our examples. They simply point us to the greater reality that we are to put our eyes on Jesus just like they did. Does that make sense? Many times I think the reason children uh, uh, rebel or, or they, they move away from Christianity, though they have once claimed faith, is because we have not been pointing our children to Jesus. We have been pointing them to an empty religion of outward externals or do's or don'ts and not Jesus himself. There is a great cloud of witnesses that encourage and spur us on, but it is Jesus to be the one that we set our eyes to. So are we a, con a, a, a conduit to point others to Jesus? You see, this perspective points us to purposeful living. That just as we are encouraging others that they must have a faith of their own, how easy it is to miss the fact that we are to have a faith of our own. How easy it is for me to, to get up and just to preach. But how easy it also is to not take these truths of God's word and to apply them to my own life. How easy it could be to, to try to shepherd the church and not be a true walking example behind the scenes of what it means to follow Jesus and, and have my own children say, hey, that is an empty example. That's not reality. The greatest testimony that we are to have starts in the home and bubbles from that. Did you know, husband, you are called to lead and to be an example to your wife? Did you know, wife, 1 Peter 3 says that even when your husband isn't following the Lord, that by your commitment to Christ, by, by your, your attitude that reflects Christ's character, your husband sees, even without your words, a picture of the gospel. We are to be pointing others to Jesus. How many of you thought when I talked about point number one, our standard, to be a list of character qualities to have in your life? But you see, those character qualities don't fall into place until first our eyes are on Jesus. And that's the point we often get out of order. Our standard is that we desire, we are to be a, a church body and individuals in that body that desire to point others to Christ. But we also have to realize when we look at this standard that this is not just a standard for Pastor Adam or Pastor Dennis or any of our church leaders. This is a standard every follower of Jesus is to have. This is the call of every Christian. 
We're going to look at this when we get to uh, Philippians 3, but in Philippians 3, verse 17, notice that Paul, who's already said to the church in Corinth, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ, he says to the church in Philippi, brothers, join in imitating me. Again, he says, I'm following Christ, imitate me, but not, don't just stop there. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So in other words, as Paul is following Christ, and then as others see Paul's example of what it looks like to follow Christ, they follow Christ too. The individuals are to not just be looking at Paul, but they're to be looking at all who follow Christ. In Hebrews 6, verse 11 and 12, talking about keeping hope in the Christian life, at the end of verse 12 it says, Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there is no hierarchy of being an example There's a greater responsibility of of stewardship of those who will give an account to the Lord. But we are all to be examples to one another. So this morning we have to dispel the myth that being an example in the Christian life is only for those who are church leaders, who we think are quote-unquote super-Christians, in fact, one of the things that, that shocks me the most is, is if, if anyone is ever kind of intimidated by me because uh, I, I'm, I'm one of the pastors here. In my mind, I think, really? I'm just like you are. Uh, one time I had somebody and Rachel and I just were laughing at home. Uh, one lady once told Rachel, she said, Rachel, I just can't imagine your husband ever getting upset with you or raising his voice. And we just were laughing. We were like, really? A a position means nothing of any type of a hierarchy. We are all followers of Jesus. We are in this together, and we have strengths and weaknesses. There should never be a time that you're intimidated to come to myself, to Dennis, to any of our church leaders, because there's some sort of perceived spiritual hierarchy. That's not the case in God's family. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. Again, yes, there's responsibility that Christ gives to spiritual leaders to oversee the flock. And as we talk about elders in the church, we've talked about that. But that does not mean there's some sort of super-Christian in the church body. Our standard of testimony is Jesus, and we are all called to be examples of following him. But secondly, I want us to look, though we've already talked about a few of these, I want us to look at some common misconceptions when it comes to thinking about my life, your life, as a testimony of Jesus. Common misconception number one, imitation does not equal perfection. 
We're going to see in first in Philippians 3:12 through 14. We're not going to look there yet, but we're going to see that that is very true. Do not think, boy, I struggle with sin, therefore my life cannot be exemplary of Christ. Number 2, imitation does not equal talent, ability, or personality. You may say, "Boy, I don't I can't really speak in public or I can't do this or I can't do that or how, how am I a, represent, a representation of Christ? Well, when you look at Matthew 5, verse 2 through 11, when, when you look at what it means to be a follower of Jesus, you don't see anything regarding personality, talents, abilities, or anything like that. You know what you see? You see spiritual brokenness Humility in a desire for Jesus above everything else. That is something that all of us can seek after. In fact, Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed, these are the people that are blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Kind of like what we saw today in the video, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are all internal qualities that we are to be seeking after, not external gifts. Number three, like we've already alluded to, we are all called to be disciples and followers of Christ. Imitation is not for the select few. In fact, in Luke 9, verse 23, it says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It doesn't say, if you're going to really be a committed disciple, then you do these things. No, Jesus said, If anyone is going to claim to be a disciple of me, this is what it looks like. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You know what taking up your cross daily is? It, is a, it in and of itself is a sign of weakness, of toil and turmoil. That no matter what difficulties we face, we are following Christ. We are willing to endure those things for his sake. So as we talk, uh, look at these common misconceptions, I want us now to delve into Philippians 3. I want us to see an example of what it means to live a life that is set on Christ, that others can imitate, this is what it looks like. In Philippians 3, 12 through 21, 
If we are going to be testimonies to the work of God's redemption in our hearts, as our membership covenant states, we're going to look at two broad categories and and talk about these. First of all, it means we are going to be individuals, we are going to be a church that strives for eternity. Not for the here and now, but for eternity. Look at chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, when we just stop right there, we want to talk about a few things. I think it's pretty clear from from verse 12 that Paul has a fixed goal in, in sight. He says here, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect or complete. Well, what is the this that Paul's talking about? If you look at verses 8 through 11, he says, I count everything as loss. Loss for what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, in fact, that he has counted all things as rubbish or garbage for this goal. And what is the end result of knowing Jesus Christ in all of his fullness Verse 10 says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. The fixed goal that he has in mind that verse 12 is talking about is the final resurrection completed redemption. That he will be counted among those that at Jesus' return, they're raised from the dead. They meet the Lord in the air. They are his on that day. Knowledge of Christ and his fullness will be ours. This is not a goal for tomorrow per se this is not a goal for what you need to get done this week this is an eternal goal and he says that he hasn't already obtained this he's still struggling in this life he's not already made complete because that will only take place on the final day but what does he do he presses on To make it my own. Literally, I press on to take hold of it. To experience it. And what is his motivation? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Did you know that that, that Peter or Paul is, is repeating the same? Verb there, to make it my own, Jesus has made me his own. You could also read this, I press on, if indeed I should lay hold of this final goal, for which also I have been laid hold of by Christ. 
It's the very same thing uh, he, he, he means in Philippians 2, 12 to 13 when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it's God that's doing the work in you for that final day. You see, if we are going to be striving after Christ, our incentive is that Jesus has made me his own. And I am going to reveal the reality of what he is doing in my heart by what I am striving for. It's the same thing that James says when he says, show me your faith by your works. The way that that Paul, the way that we are called to strive to show the reality of God's work in our heart is the overflow into the way we live. The things we value. The priorities that we hold. This is a fixed goal. But it's also a fixed mindset. Because let's face it, we live in the midst of a world of chaos. I mean, we have chaos on a global perspective. We have chaos on a national perspective. And let's face it, even if there wasn't all the chaos around us today, we have chaos on an individual level too, don't we? We have chaos that we have to work through in our homes, in our workplaces. So many things can get our minds taken off of this final goal that is to be ours. And that's why Peter, or Paul says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, that I have taken hold of, of the completed salvation, that, that I've experienced all there is to experience. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. What is the mindset that we are to have as Christians? It is the way that we pursue, lay hold of the reality of our eternal destination. That we are to be doing two things, forgetting and straining. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, that, that I have experienced final salvation in my life. I'm still struggling, I'm still suffering, I'm still in prison. But this is what I do as I press on. I forget and I strain forward. So let's look at what this means. Forgetting what lies behind. This doesn't mean that Paul all of a sudden has amnesia. That he somehow forgets everything in his life. No, this is forgetting in the sense of those things that enter his mind, that he places confidence in, that present a stumbling block to him in his spiritual race. 
There's two things in Paul's context here that could present this type of stumbling block. And I think that overall, there's two things that can present a stumbling block to us to be striving ahead in light of eternity. First of all, there is the looking behind that brings reason for shame. In fact, in Galatians 1.13... Uh, Paul says, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Now, many times we think, okay, I, Paul was, was a murderer. He tried to persecute the church of God. He literally held the cloaks of those who were stoning Stephen so that they would be unencumbered to finish the job. And we sometimes think, okay, well, big deal, you know, he was a murderer. No, that, that's a huge deal. Paul was, was a violator of one of the core commandments of the Ten Commandments. It was cause for shame. When he became a, a follower of Jesus after uh, the, road, uh, on Damascus, the road to Damascus, the Christians were afraid to even be around him because they knew this previous life. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Listen, have you ever felt, you know what? I just can't truly follow Jesus or be an example to others or serve him or rely totally upon him because I know who I am. Listen, you can't really follow Jesus until you do know who you truly are. The problem of Christians today is we don't understand the brokenness in our hearts and lives, and we are trying to live for Jesus out of our own self-righteousness. You see, a gospel-centered perspective regarding the things of the past, the sins of the past, the brokenness of the past and present is what Paul describes in 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul just didn't say, woe is me. You know my former life. You know me. And use that almost like just the grounds of pity. No, what, what was his perspective? He says, this is a trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the greatest, the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the greatest, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's saying, I'm a testimony that God can save anybody. There is no depth to which God will not reach to save his people. Amen? So at the end of the day, his testimony wasn't just, here's my life and how terrible it was. No, it was 
This all served the purpose to show you the great love and patience and desire of God to save a people to himself. Maybe today you are putting, you are allowing the stumbling block of somehow having the focus be all on yourself. And Jesus continues to call to you as he calls to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Stop trying to take your own burden on yourself. Take mine on yourself. Because I am gentle and lowly in heart. But you know, there's another stumbling block that I think is even more pertinent in the context of this passage. You see, we can have the stumbling block of a discouraging past, but we can also have as a stumbling block that we need to put in proper perspective in order to strive ahead. We need to disregard not only our reason for shame, but disregard our reason for boasting. I think many times this is an even greater problem than what we've just talked about. You see, when, when Paul says, I forget those things that are, that are behind, in the passage here in Philippians 3, what are those things that are behind him? Look at verses 3 to 7. He says, For we are the circumcision who worshiped by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church of God, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. In Paul's context, not only did he have, as a Christian, in seeing the, the truth, a, 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 a shameful past, but in the eyes of those who were trying to trip up the Philippians, he actually had great reason to boast of his past. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. A lot of these, the, the Christians in the Philippian church, they, they were Gentiles. But he himself was a Hebrew, and not only a Hebrew, a respected Hebrew. He was a Pharisee. He sat under the feet uh, of, of a well-respected uh, rabbi teacher. He was zealous as to following the law, the externals, no one could lay a finger of blame on him. But guess what all that stuff was? Boasting in the flesh. So many times when we think of our life as a testimony to others, our minds go straight to the works of the flesh. What am, I, what am I outwardly doing? What am I outwardly portraying and trying to put on a mask that, that we're following Christ and we're doing all these things and it's all a show? 
You see, we need to be broken by the reality that it is only the work of Christ. It is only the cross of Christ in which we can boast. And man, when we realize that, when we realize that our full confidence, our full boasting comes not in self, in the flesh, it comes in Christ, then we are willing and able to say, I desire to know him more because how could I look away from such a gracious God? You see, if we are going to be striving for eternity, it requires a fixed goal. That we are pressing on, knowing that one day completed redemption will be ours. It requires a mindset that our full boast is in Christ. But because we live in difficulty, it requires, verse 14, perseverance. Again, Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is the second time he says, I press on. He said it in verse 12, and now he says it again in verse 14. Ironically, that is the same word for persecute. Here he was a persecutor, but now all of that zeal no longer goes from working against God. It is following him and striving for what he desires for spreading his true message. You see, he is gripped by the reality that the gospel changes his life. And he presses on. In fact, if you were to read this literally, it says, toward the goal I press on, emphasizing that final goal that is to be ours. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. And guess what? That goal is found in Christ Jesus. And what does verse 12 say? It says, I know that Jesus has made me his own. So in all of my weakness, like that marathon runner who's tired and he's weary, he keeps going. Why? Because he knows the finish line is in sight. And not only that, but we have a much greater uh, 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 power at work within us than the marathon runner's own will. We have the, the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, knowing Jesus has called us his own. He will bring us to the finish line as we strive for him. You see, I think many of us in our lives have a, would have a tendency, myself included, to say we strive for the, not the upward call, but the horizontal call that calls out to us every day. That causes us to forget that vertical upward call. But if we are going to live lives striving for eternity it requires a fixed goal it requires a fixed mindset it requires perseverance knowing that we are Christ and then fourthly it requires a growing maturity 
after, after Paul emphasizes what goal he has set his eye on, that completed redemption that is manifested in a, in a resurrected body, in a new, uh, a new heaven, a new earth. He says to the church here in Philippi, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So Paul, in saying, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ, he says here, follow this example of striving for the right thing that I have set before you. But he realizes that, man, we, we struggle. We live amidst chaos and brokenness. There are wrong thinking patterns and wrong perceptions. And, and, and Paul says here, if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. This growing maturity in Christ, it comes not over one day. It doesn't come in a week. It comes by taking one step of faith at a time. It comes from being consistently in the Word of God, seeking to know Him more, being in Scripture. And then God reveals to us, He starts to unwind those patterns of thinking that are contrary to this striving that we are to have. Are you seeking for Christ to mature your heart in this way? In verse 16, he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, what he's saying here is, is God is going to reveal those areas of weakness and where you have not set your eyes on Christ, but you've got to start with what you know. You've got to start striving for Christ in the here and the now. To have the priorities in your life that verses 8 through 11 talk about here. To know Christ. To be a part of that final resurrection. Hold true to those things you know and God will reveal to you those other areas of life that need His refinement. So if we are going to live lives of testimony to God's redeeming work in our hearts, we are to strive for eternity. But not only are we to strive for eternity, we have the focus on what is ahead. But now in verses 17 and 21, just as we take a few minutes to, to, to wrap things up, Paul also moves to the context of the, the here and now, both for uh, the readers here in, in Philippi and for us as well. You see, we are not only to be striving for eternity, but we are to be living according to our true citizenship. If we are going to be examples, testimonies of the gospel. Why is this important? Because, because there is a danger that surrounds us. 
Verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Uh, And again, so not only is Paul an example, but all who follow the example of Paul of following Christ. There should be individuals in this church that are following Christ that you are getting a visible picture of the gospel of what it means to follow Jesus. We're to be following Christ. And here's the danger in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, this was serious, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Listen, for every one example to follow of what what, uh, the gospel looks like in real life, There are countless numbers of people to follow that point the opposite way. That point the way of boasting in the flesh. Of living for the here and now. Of setting our eyes on a temporal perspective. But we as God's people cannot be blinded by that which is temporary Look at verse 19, their end. Is their end a completed redemption, a resurrection? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. In other words, they have all the focus on the externals. They glory in their shame. The very things that they are glorying in is the things that will ultimately bring them shame. With minds set on earthly things. But listen, though there is a danger that surrounds us, if our true citizenship is in heaven, look at what verse 20 says, we have a greater hope, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, what He just said in verse 11 Transformed to be like his glorious body by our own power? No, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the very power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, where he has his glorified body, all things have been subjected now to him. That same power is going to complete that work of salvation in our lives. Our citizenship is in heaven. We have a greater hope. When we think about this week and this coming Tuesday, we realize that we are also citizens of the United States of America. And and, and many or most of us will be voting. Folks, There may be a danger that surrounds us. Individuals who who fit the description, a a philosophy, a worldview that fits the description of verses 18 and 19, a worldview that is is an enmity, an enemy of the cross of Christ. But if your hope 
is in who gets elected or who seems to be in the lead uh, uh, as votes are being counted and counted, however long that may take. If your hope is in who gets elected, listen, you are not striving according to that upward call. You are a first and foremost citizen of heaven, not a citizen of the United States of America. There's probably going to be lots of watching news this week with whatever channel it is, which you know what that automatically equals? Lots and lots of anxiety. Lots and lots of fear, lots and lots of anger, lots and lots of sorrow, whatever the case is. But this is our source of news. Amen? We as Christians should not be anxiety-ridden this week. The hope of Christianity does not, uh, is not based on who gets elected for president for the next four years. Isn't that a temporal mindset? That doesn't mean that we don't care. That doesn't mean that we're just passive citizens. But that means that we are called to have things in perspective. Listen, we are to be imitators, not of a political party. We are to be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's exemplify him in our hearts when we're all by ourselves. Let us seek him. Let us desire to know him. Let us be students of God's word. Let us be striving to then Mirror him in the way we live, in the things we say, in the reactions that we have, yes, even this week.